church. I'm excited to get to bring the word today. We have been walking through a series on Romans chapter 8. But before we kind of dive into the text, I want to talk about a 1990s show because for some reason television was just better in the 90s. In the early 90s, uh, or actually kind of mid to late 90s, there was a show called Early Edition. Who in here remembers the show Early Edition? Yeah, there's a reason it got canceled after four seasons. But in this show, the premise was that this man moves into an apartment and magically begins to receive tomorrow's paper today. Hence the name Early Edition. He begins to see the events on the front page that have yet to happen. And what, what begins to happen in his life is probably very similar to what would happen to any of us who receive news of the future before it happens. He gets consumed by it, and he's, he goes to this section where he, he sees all the tragedies, and he begins to try to live his life in a way that prevents all of these tragedies from happening. Meanwhile, his roommate sees the same paper and has a very different response, one that I think people in this room can relate to. He begins to look at the stocks, and he begins to look at the sports section and, and try to make money off of knowing what's to come. But what was interesting about the show is that it kind of caused everyone watching it to ask the question, what would I do if I knew what was to come? What would I do? What, would, it, would it shift the way that I view the world? Would it shift the way that I respond to my troubles today? If I know what tomorrow brings, would it change things? You know, the Bible unlike this show, doesn't speak of changeable events in the future, but an unchangeable truth of what is to come. And it ought to impact the way that we live today. Knowing what is to come ought to shift the way that we react to the world around us and to our struggles within it. Because no matter what happens in our personal lives, these things that the Bible says are going to happen. In our first four weeks, because it's week five of Romans 8, in our first four weeks, we went through the first 17 verses and we learned a few things. We, we talked about how the story begins with no condemnation. That we're no longer condemned, we're no longer uh, not only eternally condemned, but hopeless in our sin as we wrestle with it. That God provides help through the power of the Holy Spirit. We last week talked about training for the unprepared, the, the spiritual boot camp of what we do with the way that the Spirit allows us to live this life. That we ought to identify our sin, and because Jesus paid our debt, we ought to deal with our sin immediately, decisively, and radically. And so turn with me to Romans chapter 8 for our fifth sermon on the series. And we're going to be in, in verses 18 through 25 in a message titled, Better, Not Bitter. Now we've identified over and over, and we say this every week, and I, I kind of want you to remember it, which is Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. In the middle, it's what? Man, that was embarrassing. I'm going to give you the answer, and then we'll all say it together. No defeat. It begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and in the middle it says no 
defeat. When you think of no defeat, there's this little roadblock in our lives called suffering. And when we encounter suffering, even as believers, when we encounter anything that gets in the way of our own plans or our own comforts, we begin to doubt no defeat. Suffering is the biggest enemy to no defeat in our minds. I want to read this text, and I hope that we can grow as we do. It says that, well, actually, context, because it begins with the word for. So it says, for I consider, and we'll get to that, but any time that it says for, we know that it's a contextual statement, the same as therefore. So we have to know what the verses before it said. We've already summarized them, but let me read the two verses prior to this. Start with verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit reminds us that we are children of God. How? Because we are at war with our sin. That's what we talked about last week. That is the identifier of a child of God, is that we are not at peace with our sin. We don't just write off sin and go, eh, I'm a believer. But instead we are at war with the thing that is against our new nature. Because we are made new in Jesus. That's the context. Let's read verse 18 and on. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the, ch for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that your word speaks to us about our situation. God, that in the season of prosperity and in the season of suffering, Lord, your word guides us. Your word tells us what's next for us. God, we thank you for the promise of the song that we heard that because Jesus lives. We can face tomorrow no matter what tomorrow holds because we know who holds tomorrow. God, would you move in this message and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I once heard a preacher say, you are either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or on your way to a trial. And so I want you to know that as we walk through the uh, uh, theology of suffering today, that you might go, life is pretty good. My family's healthy. I haven't lost anyone recently. My house is doing well. My job is stable. And if that's you today, I want you to know that today is for you as well. Because a view of the future, a view of what to come, always shines more brightly when we understand it than what we're going through. 
And so it doesn't just make our suffering easier. It makes light of the things that we give our lives to too often in this life. Point number one, be prepared. Suffering is if, is not if, but how. Be prepared. Suffering is not if, but how. Now we've established the context of today's message, but what I want to point out is a little word in the beginning of, actually kind of throughout verse 18. The the word is with. With. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our union with Christ comes with difficulty. This is kind of a hard thing to swallow, but that God ordains suffering to make us more like Jesus as we walk in faith following him. That suffering is part of God's plan, and this this feels contradictory to what we believe. Because in the moment of suffering, our feelings kind of attack us and make us feel like God has abandoned us in some way. And trust me, I've been there. I, I don't have to go through my 2020 because a lot of you have had worse 2020s than I did. And praise God for 2021. But suffering has this way of making us feel isolated, making us feel abandoned. And yet the Bible teaches us, especially in this text, that it is part of God's plan to make us more like Jesus, to grow us. Would you say this with me? Suffering is part of God's plan. Say it with me. Suffering is part of God's plan. It's easy to say it. It's hard to believe. But it is God's ordained means of conforming us to the image of his son. You see, in seasons of prosperity, which some of us in this room are in right now, we have this way of focusing on the right now and not being able to see what's to come. It makes us feel like we don't need God. We can easily forget about him. But in seasons of suffering, we go looking for him. As you get to know me, and some of you do, one of the things that is absolutely true of me is I hate onions. I don't even understand onions. I don't understand why God, I, I know it's a post-fall thing. I know that onions sprouted out of a seed of sin somewhere. But, but every time I go to a restaurant, it feels like I have to unnecessarily specify that I don't want onions because onions, is in, they're, they're in everything. My daughter, rightfully, calls them that food that burns my eyes. It's like, that, that makes sense. That's pretty good. I went to a well-known establishment one time and ordered sliders without the little bitty onions. And the guy at the counter said, man, that's, that's just how they come to us. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, they arrive with the onions on them. I was like, okay. You talked me into it. I'll take three. See, in our life, we have this habit of thinking that the Christian life is made to order, that we can pick the parts that make us feel good, that taste the best. Like it's made to order, like we can order the Christian life without suffering, and yet God says that not only does it include suffering, suffering is promised. You can't separate verse 17 from verse 
18. And it's easy to read this or think about this and say, what does Paul know about suffering? This guy writing the book of Romans, what does he know about suffering? Some of you in this room have lost a child or a spouse. Some of you are dealing with uh, a consistent pain or an illness. And it's, what does Paul know? I want to summarize something found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, written by the same guy who wrote Romans 8. Starting with verse 23, um, the entire context, by the way, of the book of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is dealing with these guys called the super apostles, which is kind of hilarious that they're called the super apostles. But he's dealing with them because the way that they've worked is they've tried to shine a light on everything that, from a culture's perspective, would make Paul a deficient teacher. It's these guys who are dressed nice, who have a lot going for them, who are riding on the Rolls-Royce carriage and, and have a big house. And they're pointing at Paul and they're saying, look at how much suffering he has. Look at how messed up his life is. The dude's writing from prison. And he's poor. And why would you want anything like he has? And so Paul begins to, in describing himself as a madman, he, he begins to boast in his suffering. And this is what he tells us, this guy that we wonder if he knows what suffering is like. First of all, he lays down his credentials. He says, you want to say you're a Hebrew? I'm a Hebrew. You want to say you're an Israelite? I'm an Israelite. You want to say that you're bros with Abraham? I'm a closer bro with Abraham. You want to say that you're faithful to God, I am more faithful. A servant of Christ, I am a better servant. I've worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been beaten with rods. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been hit with lashes, 39 lashes, five times. I face death again and again. And he goes on. You begin to realize that the reason he calls himself a madman, uh, there, there are two reasons. One is that he's not the boasting type. And the second is, who in the world boasts about these things? But he's dealing with the prosperity preachers of the time. Who here knows what a prosperity preacher is? If you don't, if you have the station TBN, you only have to turn it on for about 10 minutes and you get to know one. Prosperity preachers, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of if you follow him, if you have faith and you're faithful, everything works out. That's who he's battling here. And so he, he's going to war by saying, I have all the credentials you have plus some, and I'm telling you my faith is more deeply rooted because I've been through all of this and I'm not going to waver. Paul was the most effective Christian to ever walk the planet. And he's testifying that suffering is not a diversion from God's plan, it's a confirmation of God's plan in his life. In this church and in any church, we would prefer to hear promises of God, these, these wonderful things about never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, or this promise of eternity, and those are all true and real, and yet this promise of suffering is found in the Bible to 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 16, it says, in this world you will face many troubles. It's not if you're going to suffer, it's how you're going to suffer. Will your suffering make you grow bitter or better? 
See, the truth is when we're faced with difficulties in this life, there are going to be people in this room who fall by the wayside, who throw in the towel. And, and what the Bible teaches us over and over that we say all the time is if you're able to throw in the towel and walk away from Jesus, it was never a true conversion. But that in the middle of these trials, when you seek after him, that that's evidence of your conversion. And every time life gets hard, if you can't connect the difficulty to your own bad decisions, which sometimes things that we go through are not our fault. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. If you can't connect it to your own bad decisions, trust the process. God is doing something. Point two, trust God. Weigh suffering against future glory. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now in seminary, I got to study a lot of Paul's Letters And one thing that you see is that he has theme groupings. He has moments where he writes about the same theme and even in very similar words. And probably the best summary of today's text is found, it's the Cliff Notes version of today's text, is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. It says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying it's doing something, this light Momentary affliction is doing something as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul begins by describing the difficulties of this life as light and momentary. Can we be honest today that for some of us that, that feels inconsiderate? That it's easy to think about the things that you go through or the things that you have been through and go, there is nothing light and momentary about it. And yet Paul, the authority on suffering, uses those words. He's saying that when you line up our suffering and you stand it next to you, you put eternity against the wall and you put our suffering against the wall, that one of them is bigger. For I consider. So the word consider is an accounting term. And this is what it means. Paul's saying, I've done the math. I've done the math. I've weighed both of these on the scale, and this side is weightier. When I consider my suffering and I consider eternity, one is bigger, one is heavier, one is longer, one is weightier, one is better. I've done the math. The guy with the most credibility possible uses those Terms. Octavius Winslow, a prominent 19th century Baptist preacher, once wrote, One second of glory will extinguish a lifetime of suffering. One second of glory will extinguish a lifetime of suffering. One of the most common things that's asked to Christians is the problem of evil. How could these bad things happen? And yet all the experiences in this world, the longest life, 125 years, is but a grain of sand on all the beaches in all the world compared to eternity. And there's coming a day when we will stand face to face with Jesus and all of it will wash away. Paul isn't saying to disconnect from reality. So there are people in this room who someone says, 
what you're going through is light and momentary and you feel like what they're saying is when someone, no matter what's happened in your life, when someone asks you how you're doing, you can just smile through the tears and say, I'm so blessed. Or when someone tells you a story, you can always find the optimistic, praise the Lord. That's, he's not saying disconnect your brain from reality. He's saying that there is a reality that is more real than this one. There is an eternity that is longer than the temporal. There is something bigger waiting. There's a joy that transcends what you're experiencing, and it doesn't negate what you're experiencing. He's not saying to minimize the pain. He's asking you to compare it to eternity. I can only imagine, uh, they say that the most difficult pain is losing a child. I can only imagine what that's like in this um, Christian philosopher, a well-known Christian philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who teaches at Yale, wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And he doesn't write it as a philosopher or a scholar, he writes it as a dad who 12 years before he published the book had a son, 25 years old, die in a climbing accident. And this is how he describes it. Gone from the face of the earth. I wait for a group of students to cross the street and suddenly I think he's not there. I go to a ball game and find myself singling out the 25-year-olds. None of them is he. And all the crowds and rooms and churches and schools and libraries and gatherings of friends in all our world. On all of the mountains, I will not find him. Only his absence. When we gather now, there's always someone missing. His absence as present as our presence. His silence as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one is always gone. When we're all together, we're not all together. Then he says this, if he was worth loving, he's worth grieving over. Alistair Begg, in talking about 1 Thessalonians 4.13, which is a scripture that's read at so many funerals, he reads it and says that it, it calls us to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. So it says we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And what a lot of us think when we read that is that he's calling us not to grieve, but he's saying grieve, but grieve is those who have hope. It's not negating reality. It's not negating suffering. It's not saying that nothing is real and that nothing can hurt us. This pain is real. But it's not pointless. And it's not the end of our story. Author Paul Tripp and talking about the purpose of suffering, says this, God leaves us in this broken world because what it produces in us is way better than the comfortable life we all want. Elsewhere in the same book, he talks about how God allows us to be cracked open so that we can see that the answer is not within us. The answer is not to be tougher. It's not to get thicker skin. It's not to have better willpower. The answer is outside of us. And ultimately, we find that the answer is in Jesus. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. So I already read some of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is another part of it. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It says we are, we are pressed but not crushed. We are, we are not driven to despair. We are not abandoned. Now, I do want to make a quick point. Uh, Romans chapter 8, it's easy to read it in these couple verses we're reading today and go, you're missing it. He's talking about persecution. He's not talking about sadness. And yet if you read the rest of Romans 8, contextually you understand that he's talking about anything that we go through. Any height or depth, nor angels, nor rulers, or demons, or, or principalities, or anything that can make us feel the weight of this broken world. But it's not going to crush us. It's not going to defeat us. Verse 19 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is saying something really important here. He's saying that what you're going through, everything in the created order is going through. Everything that grows from the soil, everything that breathes air, everything in the sea, everything under the sky, everything in the cosmos, in the universe, He's drawing us into what happened in the Garden of Eden. He's saying that when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, everything fell with them. And from that day till now, it's just decaying but waiting for liberation. And so the storms of this life, both literally and metaphorically, the difficulties that we go through, when there's a tornado, when there's an earthquake, when there's a wildfire or a flood, the existence of thorns, the existence of wasps and hornets and mosquitoes, ugh, great. Every single thing is yearning for the same freedom that's promised to the children of the Son of God. In other words, he's not saying that your suffering isn't a big deal. He's saying all of creation is suffering with you. It's included in this. It's a bigger deal than you realize because from the moment that sin entered the world, everything was fractured, but we'll get to that. But this big deal will not crush you. It will not destroy you. You do not have to be driven to despair. And why? Because when stacked against eternity, suffering for the believer is not only temporary, it's meaningful. God is doing something. Point three, and our last point. Look ahead, even when you can't see the outcome. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, it starts with the word for. It, it guides us into context. So verse 18 says that, there's, that the, our suffering can't compare with the future glory. Verse 19 says it's not just us, but all of creation. Verse 23 says that we're waiting for the glorification 
of everything that's gone wrong. And so the quick summary of what's gone wrong for those that are new to church, for those that are new to the Bible, is Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything perfectly. He used the word good. It was complete. It lacked nothing, which is hard for us to imagine. That humanity was right with God. Humanity was right with one another. Humanity even had a right view of self. Which in the culture that we live in is so absent. That we didn't have pride. We didn't have idolatry. That there was a time when everything that Adam planted grew quickly and easily because the soil was perfect, the seed was perfect, the atmosphere was perfect, the sun was perfect. And then Adam and Eve sinned, and this perfect relationship with humanity was fractured. We were no longer right with God. We were no longer right with one another. We no longer understood ourselves. It started with us, but it, it reverberates to the depths of creation, to the end of the universe. It says that all of creation was subjected to this futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's Adam. But now creation waits with eager longing for the day when all that has gone wrong will be made right. Creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says that creation is groaning for that day. He says it's groaning like in the pains of childbirth. What does that mean? What a vivid and difficult illustration to fully understand. But this is what he's saying. He's saying that childbirth pain is pain with a payoff. It's pain, but there's something at the end of it. The groans in the maternity wing of the hospital are different than the groans in the emergency room. One of them has something behind it. And, and there's going to be a moment almost every time when all of that pain is eclipsed by holding a newborn in your arms. Everything that is will make sense. Everything that's difficult will have a payoff for those who are in Christ. And so around us we see disasters and we see people that we love who have cancer and we've, we've lost loved ones and, and there are people who struggle with infertility or the loss of a child or infidelity or divorce, but there is a day coming when all of that will wash away in a moment of eternity, in a moment faced with the glory of Jesus, and it's all going to be worth it. For in this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. Everything around us is going to be made new. Some of us, we cannot imagine that that's true. We cannot fathom it because we cannot see it. And this is what the text says. He says that you can't see it, and that's where hope fills in the gap. That that gap between what you feel and what you can see and what the Bible says is going to come, that's where hope comes in. And goes, I know you can't see it. I know you can't fathom it. I know you can't 
feel it, but there is coming a day. This reality, this future, it is set. Nothing is going to make it waver. God will make everything right that is wrong. He says, but you don't hope for what you already see. You hope for what you don't see. In the same way that no one here who is married hopes for a spouse, we have one. I've heard it said before, I don't see how eternity could be that much better than the things I love in this world. Here's the truth. No one says that. So I haven't heard it said. I've heard it alluded to because people go, eternity sounds boring. Heaven sounds boring. What they mean is, it's not as good as a football game. It's not as good as the movies I like. It's not as good as the relationships I seek. It's not as good as going out on a Friday night. Some of us can't fathom that it's that much bigger, that much longer, that much better. That's where hope comes in, to fill in the gaps. One second of that will wipe away everything. And so today, as we say that a believer has no defeat, that there is no defeat for those who are in Christ, but suffering butts up against that and makes us think there is, that it is part of God's plan for your life to make you more like Jesus. And so he allows us to be cracked open so we can see that what we need is not inside of us. And if you're here today and all you've ever done is try a self-improvement plan, well, I'm unsatisfied, so maybe I need to work out more. I'm unsatisfied, so maybe I need to switch jobs. I'm unsatisfied, so maybe I need to build a bigger house, drive a nicer car, get a different spouse. What you need is not inside of you. It's not even around you. It's the God who created you. And he doesn't leave you in need. He comes to meet you where you are. If you would repent and believe. And maybe you're here today, and like I said, you don't have any suffering in your life right now. And uh, aside from the opener where I said that everybody is either in suffering, coming out of suffering, or on their way to suffering, maybe things are good. But I'm telling you that one second of eternity will eclipse all of those good things too. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's an old hymn, maybe you know it, it says this, oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair, but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. Chorus says this, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it not only provides hope for the hopeless, not only guides us in how to prepare our hearts to do battle with sin, but Lord, you remind us that in the middle of trials, it's part of your plan, that you're doing something in it, that you're creating in us something beautiful. 
God, I lift up those in this room today who are going through very difficult times. And there are many. Weekly, Lord, our prayer list with the staff is filled to the brim with heartbreaking stories. God, would you show those who are struggling today that it might not feel light, but that when it's all weighed out, it can't compare to the glory that's to come. Would you show those today, Lord, who are so stuck in despair that they don't have to despair? Because if they're in Christ, this won't crush them. God, would you remind us that eternity is bigger, longer, wider, weightier, better, brighter. Would you remind us today, Lord, that everything we're going through is for a purpose, and it's light, but it's momentary. That all of life in its fullest capacity and in its fullest pleasure could never compare to what's to come. And right now, Lord, all of creation, every tree, every animal, every person, every small insect or fish, every planet, all of its groaning, expecting the day when you will make it all right. God, would you reassure us that when we don't feel it, that we can hope in it? Would you fill in the gaps with the hope that comes from knowing, Lord, not just you, but that your promises are true? In this season of doubt, in this season of struggle, in this season of heartache, in this season of suffering, in this season of brokenness and despair, Lord, would you remind us today that you're going to make it right. That there will be a day when we stand face to face with Jesus and every pain and heartache and scar washes away in light of your glory. God, we're so grateful that we can gather in this place, Lord. For anyone in this place that doesn't know you, I pray that they'd find you. For anyone in this place that, that isn't leaning on you, I pray that they'd fold it, put their full weight on you. For the broken, I pray that they'd find healing. For the self-sufficient, I pray they'd find brokenness. In your name and for your glory, Lord, we're grateful. In Jesus' name.